That was a good amen. That was a great amen. Well, I'd like to uh, welcome each and every one of you to this second week in our series entitled Be Encouraged. Last week, we introduced Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, and I issued you a challenge and uh, to get the most out of this study. And let me reiterate what that challenge is. It's in two parts. The first part is quite easy, and it's this. I'd like to challenge you to read the book of Second Corinthians every week for these 10 weeks that we'll be studying the book. Now, it's 13 chapters. It takes about 30 minutes to read the entire book, so about five to seven minutes a day you can read two chapters, then just one chapter on Sunday because it's a day of rest, and you'll be able to read 13 chapters every week, and if you do that, the Word of God will kind of take root in your life. That's the first challenge, and that's easy. The second challenge is I would like you to take your Going Deeper questions, which is part of your sermon notes, and Brandon and I put these together each week, and these are questions for your study based on the sermon and on the text. And so this week there's scripture reading, getting started, a closer look, and digging deeper. And we'd like you to do those in grow groups, and you can still join a grow group if you'd like. Uh, you can do that in your home devotions, or you can do that uh, in your personal time with the Lord. But I just want to encourage you. In fact, I want to take it a step above encouragement, and I want to challenge you every week to uh, go over these going deeper questions. And if you do that, here's my promise. If you do that, you will be comforted and you will be encouraged and you will hear a word from the Lord. Now, the word that there's a Greek word that's called kairos, and it means that God will speak a specific encouraging word to you, a specific word to your circumstance, your life. And uh, I just promise you that if you open your life to God's word, that he will speak this encouraging kairos uh, word to you. So that's my promise and uh, that's my challenge to each of you. So let's uh, reset uh, the context uh, of uh, this book. And it's, it's a thrilling study. So for those of you who weren't last week, I want to just go through for a few moments the context to kind of set place that we're going to begin our study today. So, as you know, uh, Jesus uh, was uh, lived on the earth 2,000 years ago. He was crucified, and then he was resurrected after he was buried, and then he ascended into heaven uh, 40 days after his resurrection. Now, all of this takes place, uh, best, best numbers we can gather, uh, Jesus was crucified around 29 A.D., uh, should have been 33 A.D., but they got the numbering wrong a little bit in the beginning. So 29 A.D., Jesus uh, ascended into heaven. Now, after that, this this group of Christ followers, there was 120 at the ascension. There was over 500 spread throughout Jerusalem. And uh, in the coming days and weeks and months and years, uh, that group of Christ followers grew to grew to thousands in the next few years. And it was an amazing movement of God. Now, part of the reason they grew rapidly was that there was very little persecution in the first 15 to 17 years after Jesus ascended to heaven. I mean, the Romans weren't too happy with them. And later Nero persecuted him, but the Romans weren't too happy with him. The Jews kind of put up with him, even though they were afraid that they were losing a lot of Jews. They were becoming Christians and they didn't like that. The Greeks weren't too happy with them, but basically they left them alone. And uh, this group of Christ followers expanded 
do is they would meet in different homes and these home churches were called ecclesias. Now, the church of Jesus Christ was never a building. Even the word for church in the New Testament is not a building. It is a movement. It's a movement of God, a movement of the Holy Spirit. It's Christ followers doing what Jesus told them to do when he ascended. He said, I want you to go and make disciples of all peoples in all nations. So they were doing their assignment the best way they knew how, meeting in these home groups, these ecclesias for support and encouragement. And everything was going along pretty well for about 15 years. And then the Jewish leaders decided that this was getting out of hand. Now there were thousands of Christians. Many of the Jews who used to go to the temple and give their tithes no longer went to the temple. They said, we've got to put a stop to this Christian movement. And so they hired their very best hitman. His name was Saul of Tarsus to build teams of people and go and persecute these Christians, knock on their doors, drag them out of their houses, throw them in prison, beat them up. And ultimately, you would expect anything like this uh, leads to a time when they start killing people. And the first Christian martyr was Stephen. And Paul, excuse me, Saul was there to approve what was going on. And things got really out of hand after that. The persecution really amped up. At the same time, this hitman, Saul of Tarsus, uh, was confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus. He came in the form of a great light that blinded him, literally knocked him on his keister, he didn't know where he was, what he was doing, what's going on. And Jesus spoke to him from on high and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul said, because uh, I'm paid to. I don't know. I just that's what I've been told to do. And Jesus confronted him. And Paul and Saul said, well, I didn't even know you were real, but now you're real. And obviously you're alive. And so Saul right there was blinded and he had this a momentous life transforming relationship with Jesus that was just shook the world. And so later his scales fell off his eyes and, and Jesus renamed him from Saul of Tarsus to the Apostle Paul. And Paul became the greatest leader of the Christian movement in the first hundred years. And it was amazing, this transformation. So now Paul, instead of going around persecuting Christians, is going around defending the faith, going to sanctuaries, going to the congregations, going all over the country, and, uh, and, and teaching about Jesus. And eventually God said, I want you to go on journeys. I want you to take the gospel to faraway places. And so Paul went on three missionary journeys. And each one of the missionary journeys were over a thousand miles on foot and on a ship. Now, just imagine over a thousand miles, each one of these three missionary journeys. And so Paul was all over the world doing this. And after, on the second missionary journey, he finally arrived in the seaport town, a bustling, probably the second most important town in all of, uh, of Greece and a, a place, seaport town called Corinth. And there he ran into many Christ followers. Some of them had been Christ followers since Pentecost. Some of them were even Christ followers before, and they, they knew and remembered Jesus. Remember, this is only now 15, 17 years after Jesus. And they, rem- and they were forming in their churches, and Paul thought this was such a crucial place, he decided to stay in Corinth and establish the church the very best way he could. And he stayed in Corinth for how long? 18 months. Longer than he stayed anywhere else in his missionary journeys and in his life. He stayed there 18 months because he recognized how critical and crucial this seaport town of Corinth would be. 
all kinds of trade coming and going, all kinds of religions, all kinds of people from all different countries. There was a, a, a gigantic sex trade. There was all kinds of idolatry and immorality and all of things going on. And in the midst of that, Paul established this large ecclesia. This was not a small church. This was a large church, different home churches. But then they would get together periodically to be together. And he said, this is really a critical church. I'm going to stay here and teach them what they need to know about Jesus and about the gospel. He did that for 18 months. So after he left, uh, he wrote a letter back to them called what we call Noah's First Corinthians. In First Corinthians, uh, he wrote them about two major issues. Idolatry. You guys are following other gods still, just like the old Greek. You're following some of those. You got, you got to not do that. And uh, so idolatry and immorality. There were temples to sex goddesses in Corinth. There's all kinds of weird things going on. And he said, here's two areas you really need to work on. And he gave them the resources to do it. So idolatry and immorality. Paul wrote the first letter to Corinthians. After that, uh, he warned them in First Corinthians about this man who was becoming a cancer in their church. And the man, believe it or not, he was a, obviously a fairly young man, but he was having an affair, having sex with his Now, how twisted is that? I mean, that's pretty twisted, right? And I mean, even for today's standards, that was pretty twisted. And, and, and the church was not doing anything about him. They were just letting him go and not bothering him. Uh, and Paul said, you know, you've got to deal with this. This guy's a cancer in your church. You've got to deal with it. You've got to discipline him. And he showed, told him how to do that. And you've got to do that. So um, uh, he wrote this, second, uh, this next letter. And this is the letter that's, that's not, not found anywhere. It was lost. And in that letter, he said, listen, you guys said you'd take care of this. You haven't taken care of it. And he was very strong, very firm. You've got to do this. This is poisoning the church. You've got to deal with this man. Fix this right now. And Paul was very stern, very firm. And then uh, time after that, he heard from Titus that uh, Titus had visited the church in Corinth and they were mad at Paul. They were mad that he was so strong with them, that he was so firm with them, that he chewed them out for not doing what he had told them to do. And uh, and Paul felt, oh, no, now I've hurt my brothers and sisters that I love so much. They're mad at me. And so he wrote this second letter to the Corinthians and he wrote it for three reasons. The first reason was to rebuild his relationship with the people, um, to rebuild that that pastoral loving relationship. Uh, he said in one part, and we'll get to that in one of the sermons that, you know, I love you. I've never stopped loving you, but I don't feel like you're loving me back. I don't, I don't feel like you're showing me the same respect and love and honor that I have shown you. And so he's trying to rebuild that relationship. The second reason he writes the letter is to uh, encourage them to generosity. He said in the first letter, I told you that um, uh, you needed to take an offering for the church in Jerusalem that is very poor. Now, this seaport town of Corinth was a more wealthy city. And even though the Christians themselves weren't wealthy, as a large group, they had considerable resources. And Paul said, I want you to take up an offering and send that money to Jerusalem because they they don't even have any food. So you need to help take care of them. Well, they hadn't done that. I think it's because they kind of got mad at Paul for chewing them out. And so they said, well, we're not going to take the offering after all. And so the second reason Paul wrote 2 Corinthians was to encourage them to generosity. He said, Remember, you promised you would send that offering to Jerusalem. Yeah, Paul, Titus says you haven't done it yet. So I really need you to do that. And he says, and here's why. Because God has been so generous with his love for us. How can we not be generous 
to other people. And so he uses that argument. And then the third reason that he wrote Second Corinthians is to reestablish his apostolic authority. Apparently some other uh, teachers, some Greek and Jewish teachers that said they're apostles, they're the ones that uh, are in charge. And these people were sneaking into the church and questioning Paul's apostolic authority. And Paul said, let me get that straight right now. I am the apostle called by God to be over you. I've established in your church pastors and deacons and a structure and infrastructure. You need to do that. And you need to cast these other false prophets out of your church. So these were the reasons that he wrote the letter. And that brings us to our text today. Uh, Through all of these things, Paul says, I want you to see everything through the lens or the context of my encouraging you. I want to encourage you, church. I want to build you up. I want to uh, comfort you. I want you to know that in the midst of this persecution that you're feeling now, and the Corinthians were feeling persecution from the Romans, from the Jews, especially the Pharisees, and from the Greeks, the Sophists and the Gnostics were trying to infiltrate the church. So all of these groups were persecuting them, keeping them from keeping good jobs. It was really a mess. And Paul said, listen, I want to encourage you and I want to comfort you. And the reason I want to do that is so that you in turn can encourage and comfort one another. This is what we read last week. Second Corinthians one four. He, Jesus, comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. When we receive the comfort from God that he wants to give us, when we receive the encouragement from God, even in the midst of terrible circumstances, when we receive that, then we are able to be wounded healers. We're able to be those who have received comfort so that we can comfort other people in their times of distress, in their times of trouble. So that's the promise from God. He will comfort us so that we can comfort others. That's what we looked at last week. Now, today we're going to look at another promise of God. And this promise of God is profound and it is moving. And it is those of you that were in core class in the first hour probably heard us yelling uh, in there. And uh, what this this promise is, and it's an amazing promise, it's this. God says, I want to promise you the ultimate yes. Everything that God has promised in Christ Jesus, comes out as this life-giving shout that is a yes from God. Yes to God's grace. Yes to his forgiveness. Yes to his life. Yes to eternity. God says, I promise you, I will give you that ultimate, uh, that ultimate yes. That's what we're going to look at today. So uh, as we open uh, this new text this morning, just let me just ask a blessing on it. Father, Uh, This, what we're going to read is your word and your word is alive and it's true. And it was not only real for uh, the Corinthians 2000 years ago, it's real for us today because we, too, struggle with immorality and idolatry. We, too, struggle with persecution and difficulties in our lives. And Father, we need this word today to be a word for us. So uh, transform that word and transform us by the power of it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our youngest grandchild is a precious, precocious, curly-haired moppet by the name of Elowen. And let's get this picture up there. You can see Elowen. My daughter Tammy is holding her, and she's flayed uh, out in a great cry of distress. Uh, 
And if you can't hear it because this is a picture, but if you can hear what she was saying, she would be screaming, no. Her favorite word in the world is no. And she is not only, that's not only her favorite word, that word is precious to her. She adores the word. And, um, and, and she uses the word in various ways. She uses the word as an adjective, as a noun, as a verb, as an affirmation, an explanation, and a declarative statement. She loves and embraces the word no. Now, Mama and Dada try to get her to say yes. And beyond that, they try to get her to live yes by being obedient and doing what she's asked to do and all of those things. And they have some uh, uh, amount of success, but mostly they fail because her word that she loves and embraces and lives is the word no. Now, that's not uncommon for two-year-olds. Can I get an amen? Okay, yeah, we know that. Uh, this is a characteristic that two-year-olds have in general, and it's to us as parents and grandparents, it's both cute and exasperating. Let me say it this way. It's cute to grandparents. It's exasperating to parents. But when you encounter an adult that says and lives out, no, well, that's not as cute as a two-year-old. How many of you know of people who their lives represent no? No authority, no to discipline, no to boundaries, no to feedback, no to trusting others, no to faith in God, especially the God of my parents. No, no, and no. Now, uh, those of you that have teenagers kind of know what this is about. Uh, but those teenagers sometimes grow up to be adults who still live out no. One such adult was a man that uh, I grew up in a church in Southern California, a small a non-denominational church, a very uh, evangelical, very legalistic. And uh, the head of our church, one of the heads of our church, his name was Warden Conway. And uh, Warden Conway was the chairman of No. Now, this was a self-titled uh, position, but he lived it very fully. Uh, no to the way you dressed, especially if girls, and this is the 1960s, had their dresses above their knees. No to running in church, no to eating in church, no to laughing in church, no, no, no. He was the Sunday school superintendent. If he walked into your Sunday school class, you sat at attention because not only his severe black suit and his frown said no, the words that came out of his mouth were always no as well. Now he had three sons and his three sons were robotic little yeses until they got old enough to say no, and then they left home and said no and never looked back. And this was the kind of church that I grew up in, a church of no. How many of you have experienced a church of no? Okay, yeah, quite a few of you. You should have seen the number in the first service. Uh, first service, we have about twice as many people as there, and the hands shot up all over the place. Growing up in a church of no is very, very disconcerting. It, it makes things very unhappy. And it makes things very hard to learn what it means to love the Lord Jesus with all your heart. Paul was not a man who believed in no. Now, there were times he had to say no and use no and express no. But Paul was a man who in Christ wanted to say yes. And I want to read you that text this morning. It's found in chapter 1, verses 15 to 22. And this is God's ultimate yes. Since I was so sure of your understanding and trust, I wanted to give you a double blessing by visiting you twice. 
First on my way to Macedonia, and again when I returned from Macedonia. Then you could send me on my way to Judea. You may be asking why I changed my plan. Do you think I make my plans carelessly? You think I'm like people of the world who say yes when they really mean no? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you does not waver between yes and no. For Jesus Christ, the Son of God, does not waver between yes and no. He is the one whom Silas, Timothy, and I preach to you. And as God's ultimate yes, he always does what he says. For all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding, and say this with me out loud, yes. And through Christ, our amen, which means yes, or okay, or I agree, or praise the Lord, our amen, which means yes, ascends to God for his glory. It is God who enables us, along with you, to stand firm for Christ. He has commissioned us, and he has identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything God has promised us. Isn't that beautiful? Everything God has promised you in his word, everything is given to you, signed and sealed by Jesus Christ himself. Here, you haven't even earned it yet, but here, every promise of God is given to you, signed in blood by Jesus Christ, and that is sealed by the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit was the person of the Trinity that Jesus said, when I ascend to heaven, you won't see me anymore in the flesh. But when I ascend to heaven, I will leave my Holy Spirit, the comforter, the paraclete, the spirit of Christ. I will leave the Holy Spirit here with you. And that Holy Spirit will dwell in you. Christ in me, Paul said, Colossians 1:17. Christ in me, the hope of glory. So that spirit of Christ will dwell in you. And every time you recognize and believe that the spirit of Jesus is in you alive, that is a seal a promise, it's like a stamp on a deed. You know, I, last week I had to have something notarized, you know, felt real official, you know. That's what this is. It is notarized in the blood of Jesus that every single promise in his word to you and to those that you know and love is a yes. A yes. Every time. A yes. That's the question that God wants to ask us in the text this morning. Are you living in the fullest enjoyment of God's yes? Are you living in the fullest enjoyment of God's yes to you in Christ Jesus? Or to put it another way, have you said yes to all of God's yeses to you? Is there any of God's yeses to which you are saying no or maybe or not now? Now, here's Paul Hart, Paul's heart in this and really my heart for you as your pastor. And it's this. I want each of you to say as a prayer at the end of this message, Father, I say yes to everything that you have said yes to me. I say yes to everything that you have said yes to me. Now, the question before Paul was a matter of a divided heart. He had been accused by the church at Corinth of having a divided heart. They said, you promised you'd come back, that you were going to go across the Aegean Sea to Corinth on your way to Macedonia. And then on your way back from Macedonia, you'd come to Corinth again before you go to Judea. And you didn't do that. And Paul's saying, but, but you'd have to understand, now I'm covering a thousand miles 
of, uh, you know, probably 100,000 square miles of, of places to go and churches to establish and ecclesias to be a part of. And, and my plans changed. And it's not that I have anything that I would say to you as a no, but they took it as a no. They said, well, your yes is conditional. It's yes if it's convenient or it's yes if you are feeling good about us. But other times it's no. And Paul said unequivocally, no, my yes is always yes to you. Yes, I I love you and bless you. Yes, you matter to me. Yes, I love you. Yes, I want to bless you. Yes, uh, our, our life. And ministry is a resounding yes to everything you do and experience. Yes to your joy. Yes to your holiness. Yes to your faith. Yes to your hope. Yes to your love. Yes to your peace. Paul said, don't you understand my heart in this? Everything about you and everything I want to say to you is yes. And then he gives them the reason. He said, the reason I can say yes to you in this way is for one reason and one reason only. And it's this. Because everything that God says to me. And everything that God says to you is yes in Christ Jesus. Look at verses 19 and 20. For Jesus Christ, the Son of God, does not waver between yes and no. He is the one whom Silas, Timothy, and I preach to you. And as God's ultimate yes, he always does what he says. Remember what I said last week? There's only two things that God cannot do. He cannot deny himself and he cannot lie. And when God says this is a promise for you, an unconditional promise, you are going to receive that in Christ. Let me finish that text. Uh, God's ultimate yes, he always does what he says. For all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. And through Christ, our amen, which means yes, ascends to God for his glory. Paul says, my heart's not divided towards you. Something came up. I couldn't help it. You got to remember, I'm I'm dealing with dozens of ecclesias. I'm, you know, covering a thousand miles. You know, cut some slack. Give me some grace here because my heart towards you is a heart that says yes. Yes to every good thing for you. And the reason I say yes to every good thing for you is because God has said yes to every good thing for me. This is a wonderful picture of, of what God wants to do for us. It's like he gives us a, a certificate. A certificate says, the, the bearer of this certificate, signed in blood by Jesus Christ, the bearer of this certificate has everything on this list. And it's like, you know, you might say, wow, that's great. You know, free money, free access to an ATM machine, free cars and houses and like that. But instead of all of those things, it's something much better. It's stuff that you can't buy. It's stuff like having a life that matters. God says in Christ, a resounding yes. Having your sins forgiven when you don't deserve it. Having grace of God lavished upon you when you know that you haven't earned that. God says in Christ, a resounding yes. Forgiveness for my sins, but my sins, Pastor, you don't know how big they are, how awful. And and remember this sins, you might say to me, my sins, it's, it's not that I sin. I, I know that God wants to forgive me my sin, but it's that I, it, it's that I sin over and over again. And I, I do it over and over again. I, every time I say, I don't want to do that, I, I find myself doing that again. And so, God, you can't possibly forgive me because not only I sin, but I keep throwing it back in your face and doing it over again. And God says, but, but in Christ, God in Christ, 
you have a certificate that says that your sins are forgiven. Past, present, future. It's done. It's done by the power of God. You might say, well, it's eternal life. In, in my account, this, this, yes, eternal life is signed in blood by Jesus Christ for all of God's promises. Paul said through the Holy Spirit in 2 Corinthians, all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. Now, I grew up in a religion of no. Many of you did as well. A religion that says, you know what? Look at, you've sinned. You know, you, you've done this bad thing. You know, uh, and, and I was told, I can't tell you how many times I was told things like this. You know, uh, you know, if you smoke, you're going to hell. If you drink a beer, you're going to hell. If you play cards. And I heard this all the time. Everything was no, 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 no. No. Dwayne, you have to pay for your sins. You have to be accountable for your sins. No. You have to go out and sacrifice a goat so that your sins will be covered. I mean, you, you have to do that. That's what religion says. No. But listen to this. But God showed his great love for us. By sending Christ to die for us. Listen. For a while. Die for us. While we were still sinners. Not after we've stopped sinning. Not after uh, we've gotten our act together. Not after we've cleaned up our life. That's when God forgives us. But he forgives us. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. Religion says no. You have no right expecting your sins are forgiven. Christianity says yes. Yes, while you were still sinners, Christ died for your sins. Religion says, no, you don't deserve to be forgiven. Your sins are too big and ugly and fat. Christianity says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yes, religion says, no, you can't be in God's presence because you're not good enough and you never will be good enough. Christianity says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Yes, in Christ, every promise, every blessing, every grace is yes, yes, yes. And Jesus, if he were standing here today, he would say to you, dear friends, dear brothers and sisters, is in any way this is, a, is this unclear to you? In any way is this ambiguous? Did you already have that, that amazing piece of paper that says yes to all of my promises? There was a, um, in the day of Jesus, they had these um, debtor's prisons. And uh, a debtor's prison was a place that if you had debts that you couldn't pay, they would put you in, it was like a dungeon, just a dirt dungeon with uh, no real circulation, uh, no place to uh, evacuate, none of these kinds of things. So you were there and it was terrible and it was awful. And you would have to stay in that debt prison until your debt was paid, which is kind of a problem <laughs> because you're in the debtor's prison. And so they would list on a parchment all of the things that you owed. You owed Mrs. Jones 50 goats, uh, Mrs. Smith, you know, 100 sheep. And, and until those debts were all paid, you stayed in the dungeon. Jesus comes along and takes that piece of parchment off of the debtor's prison. And the last three words he said on the cross were these words. It is finished in Aramaic. It's translated paid in full. And Jesus scribbles his signature at the end of that. And he said, do you understand what this means? And so you're standing in the dungeon. You're in the but Jesus, I don't deserve to be forgiven. It's already been paid for. But Jesus, I, I, I really can't see the light of day because I'm so bad. 
It's already been paid for. It's already been signed for. It's already yours. My, my answer is yes to all of your objections, all of the reasons why you shouldn't be forgiven, all the reasons why you should be held accountable for your sin. My, my answer is yes, 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 and yes. Now, Paul was a student of the Old Testament. And he knew the law was good. There was nothing wrong with the law. The law, said, the law says do not kill. Now, who can argue with that? That's a good law. You know, the problem is a lot of people have killed. And the problem further is Jesus said and it's not just about killing somebody with a knife. It's also about hating them, which kills their spirit. That's also killing. Don't do that either. Well, as soon as Jesus said that in the Beatitudes, we got we, we're in trouble right in the Sermon on the Mount, because we've all at different times hated someone. And, and God said that's just the same as putting a knife in their heart. And so you, you can't keep the law. The law is good. Nothing wrong with it. But you can't keep it. And so here we find these stories in the Old Testament that are powerful stories. So one of them is the story of Moses going up on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. So he goes up there and he's going to meet God. And God is there, but God has to disguise himself. And he disguises himself in the form of a burning bush. Because if Moses were to look on God, a holy, perfect God, and uh, Moses looked on him and Moses had sin in his life, which he did, like all of us, right? And he would have just simply exploded. And so God hid himself in this burning bush. In addition to that, God said, take off your shoes for the ground that you're standing on is holy ground. And so Moses is standing there. Man, I don't know what to do. I'm afraid to move. I can't look directly at God because I'll, my head will blow up and I don't know what to do. And, and that was the old covenant. And, and that's the picture of, oh, no, what do I do? I'm standing before God. You know what it says in the New Testament? Listen to this. The Bible says that in Christ, we draw near to God. We don't stay away. We don't hide our eyes. We don't avert our attention. He doesn't have to f- disguise himself in the form of a, 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 a burning bush or something else. In Christ, we draw near to God. We draw near. We literally look him in the eyes. The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was this amazing uh, piece of furniture that kept all of these great artifacts that showed in help people remember about God's great miracles. It was Aaron's rod, his staff, and it was the Ten Commandments, the tablets, and some other great stuff in there. And and the purpose of the Ark of the Covenant was to literally to contain God. God was contained in the Ark of the Covenant. Can you imagine? That's kind of the Old Testament concept that God is contained somehow. And the deal was this, that, and we have examples in the Old Testament when they would open the Ark of the Covenant and a, a, a sinful person, a person that is broken and a person that doesn't keep God's commandments, which was everybody, would open the Ten Commandments, would open the Ark of the Covenant, and they literally would just disappear. You know, they would blow up. And in fact, when um, Steven Spielberg was doing research for Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know that movie back in the 80s? Uh, that uh, if you don't know about the Ark of the Covenant in the Bible, you know about that one. And uh, and so he was doing research and he asked some bib- biblical theologians to tell him what would happen if a real normal bad like person opened the Ark of the Covenant. And the theologian said, well, basically their face would melt off. And Steven Spielberg said, oh, now that's a great idea. I've got I've got that in my head. I can see that. And of course, that's what he did in the movie. But the whole idea is that, OK, if you're of God and you have a sinful heart, you cannot look at God. He has to close himself to you. You have to close himself to us. And you know what it says in Hebrews 12 too? Because Jesus Christ was the atonement for our sin. It says this, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Don't have to turn away. 
Don't have to avert our attention. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our salvation. We can look at God through his son, Jesus. The Bible tells us that when Jesus Christ was dying on the cross, they had, uh, again, one of these Old Testament ways of keeping God uh, away from people so they wouldn't blow up. They had this holy of holy place in the tabernacle. And the holy of holy place was the Ark of the Covenant, the Shekinah glory, the presence of God. And because the people couldn't look at it because of their sin, they put this heavy curtain in front of it. And no one could enter in there unless they were sinless. And of course, they lost a lot of priests that way. But uh, that was just this holy place. When Jesus Christ died on the cross and when he gave up his last breath and when the whole earth shook, you know what it said in the temple? What happened? The temple, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. It was pulled back. It was opened up. Why? Because for the first time, because of Jesus, we could look at God. We could see God face to face. Religion, the old covenant was constantly saying, no, no. No, don't come near. Don't you dare come near. You're not good enough. You're not safe enough. You're not holy enough. Don't come near. But in Christ, everything is yes. I love that. We stand before a holy God without fear and trembling. And we say, Lord Jesus, you are my only hope. Every sinner who comes to God in Christ with all of his brokenness, with all of his sin, with all of his needs, finds God coming toward him. Uh, Someone remind me, uh, Cody reminded me after the first service that the famous picture of Adam, that Michelangelo drew of Adam and God, you know, where they're touching the fingers, that if you look at the picture, and when he said it, I kind of remembered it, uh, you see Adam kind of, you know, like this, you know, like, oh, man, it's like touch, if I'm going to touch the outlet, I'm going to get zapped. You know, he's kind of leaning back, fearful in a way. And you see God kind of leaning into him, pressing into him and coming down to him and moving toward him. That's what happens in Christ. God moves toward you. Doesn't hide himself. Doesn't hide in a box. God moves toward you. And he says, look at me. Look at my love. Look at my grace through Jesus. Look at me. This is who I am. When a sinner meets with the Holy God in Christ, the word is yes. When you ask the question, Father, and we've all asked this question, just like Peter asked it, Lord, do you love me? And the answer, because we we ask that question because we think we're unlovable. And the answer is, oh, my son, my daughter in Christ, I love you with an everlasting love. But, but do you forgive me, Father? Oh, son or daughter, I know how you've struggled in this world. I know how it's so hard for you to stay on track. But do you, do you, do you want to know that when I signed my name on that parchment, when I signed on that certificate that you are my child and I am your God, don't you know that in Christ my answer is yes? Lord, will you heal my broken heart? Yes. Will you walk beside me when I feel alone and afraid? Yes. Lord, will you give me strength to live for Jesus, to love like you want me to love? Yes. 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 All the promises of God, all the blessings of God, both now and forevermore, are a decisive yes in Christ Jesus. 
Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you believe that? Do you receive that? I mean, can you say out loud a decisive yes to that? That was really indecisive. Can you say a decisive yes to everything that you have heard today in this message? I would like to close with this this morning by asking you a series of questions. And I would like you to answer out loud. Now, some of you may say, well, Pastor Dwayne, I'm not a Christ follower. I've never given my life to God or Jesus or anything. I don't really understand that. So I don't really know if I can say these things. Can I make a suggestion? Can I make a suggestion just for this morning? There's people all around you that have strong faith. Just borrow their faith this morning for just a few moments. Because I want to hear a word from Hope Covenant Church, a word from this group of Christ followers who recognize that everything that God has said to you in Christ is a gigantic yes. And so I'm going to ask you a question. At the end of each of those questions, I want you to say with all your heart and with all the decisiveness you have, yes and amen. Okay, that's what it says in the text. Yes and amen. Let's practice that. Yes and amen. Can my sins be forgiven? Yes and amen. Can God heal my broken heart? Can God heal my broken marriage? Is is there hope for this crazy 9-11 Navy shipyard, hatred-fueled, racist-filled world? Is there hope for that? Yes and amen. Because Jesus said, I will make all things new. Will there be an end to the suffering and heartache and pain and tears? The answer is yes and amen. Is there meaning and purpose in life for me? The answer is yes and amen. Is there life after death? Yes and amen. Is there cleansing for my broken past? The answer is yes and amen. Is there hope to live victoriously right now? The answer, friends, is yes and amen. For all God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Lord Jesus, this morning we want to say to every yes you've ever said to us, we want to say yes to you. To every single yes you have said to us, We want to say yes to you. Father, my heart tells me this morning that there are people here this morning who have never experienced Jesus as a loving, forgiving Savior. They maybe have heard about him or they've heard about God, but they didn't realize that what Jesus did for us, that we might have this relationship with him, that he literally died on the cross that our sins would be forgiven and we would have access and freedom to be in the presence of Almighty God. And so this morning, Father, I would just ask that if there are people here this morning who would desire to say yes to Jesus for the first time, to say yes to, for, the, for the forgiveness of sins. Yes, Lord Jesus, I want you to be my Savior and my Lord. Yes, I want to experience life everlasting. If there are those here this morning who would pray that prayer, I would just invite you to pray this prayer with me, not out loud, but in the quietness of your own heart. Would you pray this prayer? Dear Lord Jesus, this morning I say yes to you. Yes to your sacrifice. Yes to your forgiveness. Yes to the power to live every life like it matters. Yes to eternal life. Yes to loving you and loving people the way you've called me to. By faith, in Jesus' name, I pray that Jesus will become my Lord and my Savior.
Forgive me of my sins. And give me this huge yes in my life that I've never experienced before. That is my prayer. And I pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Now with each head bowed and eye closed this morning, I just want to know if there are those who prayed that prayer this morning. And if you did, I would want to pray for you. So I'm going to ask you in just a moment to raise your hand. And when you raise your hand, I'd like you to look at me. No one else is looking around. Just make eye contact so that I can pray for you. So if you prayed that prayer, would you just raise your hand right where you are? God bless you, hon. Yes. God bless you. Yes. Yes. Anyone else? Yes. God bless you, honey. Lord, thank you for these. Anyone else this morning? Father, how grateful we are that in this place, which is holy ground, we find that everything you want to say to us is yes in Christ Jesus. And Father, for these who raised their hands this morning and for those in the first service, we just pray, Lord, that they would experience this gigantic yes in you. They would know you, love you, serve, serve you. The roots would grow deep in Jesus and that they would find this eternal yes in their lives. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. And thank you for meeting us here today. Lord, I would pray also that those of us who are Christ followers, that we would make it a habit of every day saying yes to every single yes you give to us in Christ Jesus. We love you. And we desire to serve you with all our heart. And we pray these things in your precious name. Amen.